Welcome to Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, Missouri. The Chapel family is a multi-generational community of believers who gather weekly to worship and explore God's Word as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as Pastor Keith Spa opens the Scriptures. Good morning, family. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of John. To John chapter 15, we're in the middle of a series looking at the last eight or so hours that Jesus spent with his disciples where uh, John writes there that Jesus showed to them the full extent of his love. Even as we've just been singing, uh, just been singing, um, not only in the upper room, but he was setting the stage for what they were about to see as he displayed his love on the cross. Question, why are we here? And uh, just asking that question, some of you are probably, well, pastor, if you don't know, <laughs> maybe we'd just be running along here. Kind of thought we was coming to church. Uh, no, I'm, I'm really asking a deeper question than why are you here this morning? Why am I here this morning? I'm asking the question, why are we here Meaning, why are we here on earth sucking breath into our lungs? In other words, does your life, does my life have some meaning, some purpose to it, by which we would explain, here's why we're here. Why has Almighty God, in His infinite wisdom, given life to you, given life to me, placed us here, placed blood in our veins, strength in our muscles, air to our voice. Why are we here? You know, there's some people who simply drift through life with no real purpose. There's an old saying that if you aim at nothing, you're sure to hit it every time. And a lot of people live life that way. Of course, the reality is, those of us who are a little older, we understand as we start to get that little bit older that time is a relentless thief. Continually... And ever so subtly and yet ever so quickly turning our tomorrows into yesterdays. And so very many people tragically end up at the end of life having regrets because they realize they have wasted time. It was not very long ago I was meeting with an older person just a few months ago, and they expressed that very thing. There were things that they had longed to do and desired to do, some important things and, in our way of thinking, rather significant things for Christ, and they realized that time has gone by and it is really too late. Their health has failed. Their mind is failing. 
they had deep regrets. That's why Moses writes in Psalm 90, Teach us to number our days rightly, so that we may present to you, or in some translations, so we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days well, because we realize, as that psalm says, that life passes by quickly. We want to use it well so that when we stand before God, we can present to Him a heart of wisdom, a life well lived. That's a great prayer. Some simply drift through life with no purpose. Others have great purpose and ambition in their life. They have carefully crafted goals and objectives and they are very busily and diligently working toward those goals. But even then, they're still with so many, they get to the end having climbed the ladder of success and realize, as our pastor Jim used to say years ago, he said they get climbed all the way to the top of the ladder of success and realize it's leaning against the wrong building. How do we avoid these mistakes? Wasting life by, by simply aiming at nothing or wasting life by aiming at the wrong things? Well, here in our study in this upper room, in these last hours that Jesus is spending with His disciples, knowing very well, as our text has told us, exactly what is coming, Jesus knows He only has hours. And He is conducting here with these disciples a bit of a cram session. What many of us did in college, knowing that you know the deadline is coming. And, we're, and it's, you're trying to cram everything in. Jesus says, okay guys, we just have a little bit of time. Let's hit the important things here. What you really need to know. And the Apostle John considered these, these words so significant that he takes almost a quarter of his gospel... A quarter of the Gospel of John takes us just in these, through these eight hours. This is critical time. These are words that John obviously knew. It wasn't just for them that they needed. It's what we need to hear if we're going to live as followers of Jesus Christ. Today, as we come to John chapter 15, it's a passage that many of us, perhaps most of us, are at least a little bit acquainted with. As Jesus begins, and He talks about a vine and branches. But it's here that Jesus will answer that question. What is our purpose? Why has God put you here? What does He expect of you and desire of you as a follower of Jesus Christ? Not only will He tell us what our purpose is, He will also tell us how we can accomplish that purpose. And then we'll see He makes or gives to us three absolutely astounding promises. Well, let's dig in. By the way, up to this point, um, Jesus and the disciples have been uh, in the upper room where they celebrated the Passover and then, however, at the, the end of chapter 14, and we didn't read it last week, but at the end of chapter 14, you'll see these words, Jesus, rise, let us go from here. 
And so many folks think that uh, Jesus and the disciples left the upper room. It appears here Jesus is saying, let's get up, let's go. And they leave the upper room and head toward the Garden of Gethsemane, where in a few hours Jesus will be arrested. However, if we look over a couple of chapters to chapter 18 and verse 1, it says, when he, Jesus, had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley, and on the other side there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. That's the Garden of Gethsemane. And said, so which is it? Did Jesus and the disciples leave the upper room at the end of chapter 14, or did they leave here at the beginning of chapter 18? There are some folks who think that, you know, perhaps it took them a while to get away. Jesus said, hey guys, let's get up and let's go. And, you know, somebody couldn't find their sandals, you know, or whatever. And, you know, somebody spilled the, you know, the knocked over stuff and they spent time cleaning up or, you know, they'll fold up the tables like after a potluck, you know, and put them in the corner. Whatever, that maybe they just got started picking up and the rest of these chapters, chapters 15, 16, and 17 happened still in the upper room. They were getting ready to go, but they took some extra time to just talk a little more. And that may be the case. However, if they left right away, as many surmised that they did, and I'm rather of that inclination, then chapters 15, 16, and 17 occur as Jesus and the disciples are walking and somewhere between, along the way, between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane. And probably along the way, they stop in a place or two and converse a bit and stop while Jesus prays his wonderful prayer in John 17, which will end this series. That's very possible. Either way, we pick it up in verse 1. I am the true vine... And my father is the vine dresser. Jesus here begins talking about a vine and about branches. And if they are in transit between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane, it may be triggered as they pass a little vineyard. Very often, I think, as Jesus taught, he is looking around at the surroundings and he'll, he'll take something from the surroundings to use as an illustration, whether it's children or whether it's, it's a field of wheat or whatever. And that could be the case. Or, as I just like to imagine, and again, it's just my imagination, but that they are walking along through the streets of Jerusalem. It's a full moon because it's Passover. And as they are going through the streets, they come to the temple and perhaps go into the temple grounds. The gates would have been open in this Passover celebration time. Around ten times in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, are referred to as God's vine. And so the people of Israel had taken that and rather adopted it as kind of their national symbol. The vine represented Israel. And the ancient historian Josephus records that in the temple, that the, the massive gates of the temple that were some 90 feet tall, said that they were covered with gold, all over covered with gold, as was the 
whole wall about it. And it had also golden vines above it, from which clusters of grapes hung as tall as a man's height. And all around this gate, there's these golden vines. And in my imagination, Jesus and the disciples are seeing this, and Jesus says, I'm the vine, the true vine. Not like Israel, who was never really a faithful vine. When you look at all those references about the vine, they were constantly a disappointment to God. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. And regardless of what prompted it, Jesus uses this vine as an allegory, as an illustration to teach us some very important spiritual principles. Jesus Himself is the vine, and Jesus says the vine dresser, or some of your translations will say the gardener, is God the Father. And then the branches, as we'll see as we go through, and it says it very plainly down in verse 5, the branches are the disciples, the followers of Jesus, the eleven that are with Him right then, and, and extends on down to all of us. We are Part of this vine. Back to our first question. What is our purpose? Believer in Jesus Christ, what is your purpose? Why has God put us here? I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He, the Father, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Jesus says that we, the branches, are to be bearing fruit. We are to be fruitful. Jesus makes it crystal clear down in verse 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. There it is, very plain. I chose you, I appointed you to bear fruit. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's his purpose for you. Now we notice that there are two kinds of branches that he's described here already just in the verses we've read. Two kinds of branches. The first of these branches, we discover, are non-fruit-bearing branches. They are no-fruit branches, fruitless branches. And we see here that the, the gardener, the vine dresser, takes them away. He removes them. And then if we look down in verse 6, we discover that they are thrown away. They are withered and they're burned now, there's a number of differences among theologians about the identity of who these non-fruit-bearing branches are. And in the time we have, and with all that I have to, else I have to say, we don't have time to go and examine all the different viewpoints on that. So I'm just going to tell you the right one. Okay, it's my perspective. You are free to study them on your own and you're free to disagree with me and then you can come into my office and you can and you can tell me why I'm wrong and why your viewpoint's better and I'll I'll listen and very respectfully and but for now you're going to get my perspective okay so this isn't 
Take that with a grain of with whatever it's worth. My opinion. But my understanding is that these non-fruit-bearing branches are people who claim to be part of God's vine. They claim to be followers of Jesus. They may hang out with the vine. They may look like the vine. They may have leaves like the vine. But they have no real heart for Jesus. They have no faith in Him. They are people like Judas, whom we saw already in our study here. Judas, who had spent three years following Jesus. He professed to be a follower of Jesus. He professed to believe in Jesus. He looked like a disciple. He acted like a disciple. He preached like a disciple. Matter of fact, we've learned that he was so much looking like a disciple that the disciples, even still now, don't know that he's the traitor. He's left. They think he's gone to run an errand for Jesus, even though Jesus said there's a traitor. (laughs) That's how much he looked like a disciple. And that's what Jesus, I think, is describing here. Jesus is not saying here that we earn salvation by doing good works, by bearing fruit. Jesus is hes also not saying that we keep our salvation by bearing fruit or that we can lose our salvation by not bearing fruit. That's not what we're saying. There's plenty of scriptural evidence to say that's That would contradict lots of Scripture. What Jesus is saying is that a true disciple, a true follower of His, a true branch in the vine will bear fruit. The person who truly believes in Him, their faith will show up in their life. It's exactly what James says says, you may say that you have faith, but I say, show me your works. It's not that works save you, but if you're really saved, it'll show up in your works. It'll show up in how you live. Jesus says it here down in verse 8. He says, look down to verse 8. He says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We don't do works to prove we're His disciples, but if we are His disciple, if we are His follower, if we have put our faith and trust in Him, it will show up in what we do. May I say, if you profess, if you're here this morning or if you're watching online, and you profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you profess to have trusted in Him as your Savior from sin, you trust to own Him as Lord, But it's making no difference in your life. If you love the same things as this world, if you value the same things as this world, if you chase after the same things as this world, if you talk the same way as this world, if you live the same way as this world, something's very wrong. You're either a sick branch or you're not part of the vine at all. And Jesus says, those branches get taken away. And their end is not pretty. They are exactly like Judas. 
being around Jesus, being around the church, even being a member in a church doesn't get anyone into heaven. Being in church is good. Being a member of a church is a good thing. But the only way anyone gets into heaven is by placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And a person who truly believes in Jesus Christ, it will show up. Jesus says here, it will show up in their life. It will show up as fruit. And so Jesus says there are non-fruit-bearing branches and there are fruit-bearing, fruitful branches. Every branch that does bear fruit, he says, he, the gardener, the vine dresser, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. The Father prunes these branches. Actually, that, that word prunes literally translates as cleans. It includes pruning, but it's more than that. It's caring, it's nurturing for this vine. Why does he do it? That they may be more productive. There's a progression there you'll see in the text. It says the the branch that bears fruit, God cleanses it. He he takes care of it so that it may bear more fruit. You go down a little bit down to verse 5 and then later in verse 8 and you'll read that it bears much fruit. Just that little thing there, by the way, reminds me that fruit bearing doesn't happen all at once. It's a process. It's that way with vines and it's that way with Christians. We start off as baby Christians and, and we're still, you know, we're still digging deep in the vine and, and beginning to, to grow out a little bit and, and there's a little fruit, but the, the older and more mature the branch becomes, the more fruitful it becomes. That's the design. The tool that God uses here to cleanse or to prune this branch, we'll see in verse 3. Because we wonder, what is this pruning thing? How does God do this? In verse 3 it says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Jesus is saying that to the disciples that you've heard Jesus' words, the word of God, and through it you've come to, trust, to put your faith and trust in Him. And they are already clean, meaning they are already saved. They are already have a destiny in heaven. And the same Word of God that has saved them is also the same Word that the Father uses to now continue to produce fruit in them. David, back in Psalm 119, asked the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? How can he keep his way clean? And the answer is, by living according to your Word. So David writes a little bit later, two verses later actually, he says, Your word I've hidden in my heart so that I will not sin against you. Sometimes though we're not hungry for God's word, we don't want to listen. And sometimes the gardener has to pull out the shears, he does a little pruning, brings a little pain and a little challenge into our life and it chases us back to the Lord and to His word. David writes later there in Psalm 119, I think it's down in about verse 74 or 76, somewhere in there, and he says, I was glad that I was afflicted. Why? Because it made him go back and listen to the word of the Lord. Sometimes the, the cleansing of the gardener isn't pleasant, but it's always for our good. Well, 
Fruit-bearing branches, the Father prunes them, He cleans them. But we wonder this question, what's the fruit? If we're supposed to be producing this fruit, what's this fruit supposed to be? Are we supposed to be making money to put in the offering plate? Are we supposed to be, is it uh, we need to you know, bring, bring people to church? Is it, uh, what's the fruit? Especially you overachievers, you type A, you want a list. So you can start working on it, check it off. Got that one? Well, fortunately, our text helps us. Essentially, if I can summarize it, the fruit is that we are to be producing is actually what Jesus produces in us and through us as we live in a close relationship with Him. I see three types of that fruit here in the text, though. Bearing fruit is becoming like Jesus in our character. One way that bearing fruit shows up, it shows up in a Christ-like character. I look down in verse 12, and I notice that Jesus talks there about loving others. By the way, that's going to be next week's message. So I won't delve into that much. Then I look in down in verse 11, and Jesus talks about us having the joy that He has. He, so He talks about loving others like He loves us. He talks about having joy that He has. We go back to chapter 14, in verse four, chapter 14, verse 27, and it, He talks about having peace, having His peace. And I think there's love, there's joy, there's peace. That sounds familiar to me. And it takes me to Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit that Paul describes that the, the Holy Spirit produces in us. The first three in the list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, or faithfulness. I left that out. Gentleness, self-control. Christ-like character. That's part of the fruit that Jesus will grow in us branches. The second fruit that I see in this passage is becoming like Jesus in what we do. Christ-like conduct. Christ-like character will manifest itself. It will show up in Christ-like conduct. When we grow this fruit, when it is growing in us, it will change how we live. It will show up in how we Obey His commands. Verse 10, He speaks of obeying His commands. Verse 14, He speaks about obeying His commands. We saw it last week in chapter 14. We saw Him talking about obeying His commands. That's one way this Christ-like conduct shows up. Another way it shows up is in how we treat others, how we treat our wife how we treat our family, how we treat our neighbors, how we even treat our enemies, how we treat the poor, how we treat the outcast, the loner. You will show up this Christ-like character in how we do our work. The attitude and the effort that we put into our job, that we put into our chores, that we put into students our schoolwork, It will show up in how we use our time. It will show up in how we use our money. It will show up in how we use our talents. Christ-like conduct. 
a third type of fruit that I see here. As I look down to verse 18, which will be where we will be in two weeks, and there Jesus says, you also will bear witness. He's talking about our relationship to an ungodly, unbelieving world. And he says that we will be sharing the gospel, bringing people to Jesus. You all know, of course, that after Jesus rose from the dead, before He ascended to heaven, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus gave to the disciples, and it's come down to us that we are to, He commissioned us to make disciples. That is part of our job. And that is part of the fruit, I think, that he that will be produced in fruitful branches. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the last words is Jesus is taking off, ascending to heaven, and He says, You will be My witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Christ-like converts. That's the fruit. The fruit is Christ-like character, Christ-like conduct, Christ-like converts. In other words, it's making us like Jesus. When you and I are properly in the vine, the fruit that God wants to grow in us is He wants us to become more like Jesus. As the Scripture says, we are being conformed to the image of His dear Son. Well, alright, now we know our purpose. We're to be fruitful. Now we know what the fruit is. The question is, how are we to do that? How do we bear fruit? How do we achieve our purpose? Verse 4. I'm going to read a lot of verses. We won't have time to dig deep. but We're just going to get the main point. He's going to tell us here in these verses how we can bear fruit. By the way, because the question comes up, who is this for? I mean, this bearing fruit stuff, this being having Christ-like character, Christ-like conduct, Christ-like converts, is that just for, you know, like these apostle guys? Is that just for uh, church leaders, for pastors, for missionaries, for those folks? I mean, does he really expect this out of us, all of us? Well, let's read and see how we do this. How do we achieve our purpose? Verse 4, Abide in Me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in Me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from Me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. We really can't miss His big point. How can we bear this fruit? How do we bear fruit? He said it ten times in the verses I read. 
So let's see if we can get it, okay? How do we do it? This is crucial. Because he says here, our purpose, he said our purpose is to bear fruit. But he says here in verse 4 and verse 5 that we cannot bear any real fruit. We cannot bear any real fruit without abiding in Him. And He in us. So we go, Amen. Let's go home. Got it. You know the real problem with that is? None of us knows what abiding means. And we all say, yeah, abide, you know. So we say, it's something super spiritual. You know, we just hear, okay, I'm abiding in Jesus. And we're waiting for the fruit to come and it doesn't come. What in the world does it mean here when it says, abide in me? How do you do that? How do you abide in Jesus? That is the six million dollar question here. I pondered that a lot this last week. I read a lot. How do they explain it? How do they explain it? What do the words really mean? Problem is this word abide, by the way, when you look in the scripture, it's translated a bunch of different ways throughout the New Testament. And the reason it's translated a bunch of different ways is because it has a bunch of different connotations that cannot be expressed in one English word. But as I tried to kind of distill it all down, here's, I think, the best understanding of what this word means. When Jesus says, abide in me, that it means this, make our home in him. Now, you may say, well, that may be a little clearer, but what does that mean? How do we make our home in Jesus? I wonder what you think of when you think of home. See, as I tried to get what I think most people think of home as being, here's kind of what some thoughts of what I think home is. What is home? Home is where our heart is. Home is where the the things and the people that we love most are. You know, when we go home, it's our kids, it's our grandkids, it's our puppy dog, you know, it's our, our wife, our husband, it's the people we love the most. The things we love the most, they're at home. Home is where we find strength, home is where we find security, home is where we find safety. When the world out there gets mean and ugly and difficult, we run home. So we can close the door. Hopefully there's people there that love us. Safety and security. Home is where the center of our world revolves. Just our world. So we get up in the morning and we leave home to go to work to earn some money to pay the bills and to furnish the home and to, and to keep the home clean and to have and have the food we need and stuff. And then we, at the, at the end of the day, we go back home and to be with the folks we love and and our world kind of revolves around our home. Home is where we like to bring our friends. When we want to hang out and enjoy people, we, and we, we love to take them to our home. May I say, I think that's a good little synopsis of really what Jesus should be to us as believers. Jesus should be where our heart is. He should be what we most love. Jesus should be what the 
where we find our strength and our security and our safety. Jesus should be the center of where our little world revolves around. If we make our home in Jesus, we are going to change our desires to line up with His desires. We will change our priorities to line up with His priorities. We will change our purposes and we will change our whatever else we can think of to line up with His because our world is revolving around Him. Our love is with Him. What He loves, we love. What He hates, we hate. That's what happens when we make our home with Jesus. You say when we get up in the morning, Jesus, what do you want today? What are we going to do today? There's another aspect, though. Jesus said we are to abide in Him, but He also says, and Him in us. Now, last week, Pastor Aaron took us through before this where Jesus uh, makes the promise of the Holy Spirit, which again is a major theme that runs through this whole section That Jesus gave the promise that the Holy Spirit is going to come. And it's a good thing. It's a better thing. It's to your advantage if I leave so the Holy Spirit can come because He will be in you. Well, if the Holy Spirit is going to be in us, why does Jesus say here, as He's talking about what we need to be or do to have this fruit grow in us, why does He say we need to abide in Him and Him in us? Because, see, I think the other aspect of this is We make our home in Him, and we want to make Him at home in us. See, we treat people entirely differently if we want them to live in our house or if we don't want them to live in our house. (laughs) You know, if you've got a guest you want to leave, you want them to leave, then you treat them very differently than the guests that you want to stay. When a guest comes that we want to stay, we, we know they're coming and we get the house ready. You know, we get the house cleaned up so it looks nice. We go out and we buy good food and we bring it and make sure we got, we're well stocked and we, you know, we'll even put clean sheets on the bed, you know. And, um, if we know that there are things they don't like, you know, they hate country music, we will not be playing country music when they walk in the door. In other words, we go out of our way to please the person that we want to feel at home in our home. The person we want to stay with us. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's what He says in in verse 10 where He says, If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love. You're doing what I want. You're you're not doing what I don't want. (laughs) You're living in My love. He talked about it back in chapter 14 we saw two weeks ago. Where Jesus says that if we keep His commandments, that's how we love Him. That's how we show our love for Him. And the one that loves Him, He says, we will come, the Father and I will come and make our home in them. See, we may have the Holy Spirit in us because we are believers in Jesus Christ, but He is not at home in us. If I can make a distinction there. We have made the home of our heart very inhospitable to Him. And Jesus is saying, though, for fruit to grow in us, we need to abide in Him. We need to make our home in Him and make Him at home in us. But He makes a promise. If we do that, 
He promises to grow His fruit in us. Now, three more promises. Three astounding promises. We're going to close with these. That I saw as I was going through this and I thought, wow, we need to, we need to hear these. Three big promises to those who will abide in Christ. Not only will He grow fruit in us, but look at this. In verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He says, I will hear and answer your prayers. When our aim is to make our home in Christ and to make Him at home in us, we can be confident that He will hear and answer our prayers. Again, we saw this promise. This sounds familiar. We saw this promise a couple of weeks ago. It's not that He's going to do whatever we want when our focus is on Him. Back in chapter 14, it's whatever you ask in my name. Meaning you're asking according to what my purposes are. Here, it's, it's while we're abiding in Him. Our, our home is in Him. Our desires are there. Our aim is there. We want to see fruit growing in us. We want to see God's Word spread through the world. We want to see people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We want to see people growing in Christ. We want to see fruit growing out there. When that's our aim, that's our purpose. He says, you got a blank check. That's not prosperity gospel. That is garbage. And it's all around us. But it is saying, brothers and sisters, we need to get our heart right with God and then we need to pray. And He... I think has a lot more to give than we ever think he would. It's not about money. It's about building the kingdom. Growing the fruit. Not only did Jesus did he make the promise before in last chapter, chapter 14, not only does he make it here in verse 7, he makes it again in verse 16. You did not choose me, look at verse 16, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He will give it to you. There it is again. And I confess to you again as I did two weeks ago, this is something I need to learn. I ask way too little of God because my heart is not nearly as right with God as it ought to be. He's got a lot of work to do in this poor branch. But he's at work pruning, cleansing. There's a second thing here. In that very verse, there's another big promise. I don't know if you saw it. But he says this. And let me ask a question before I read it. Do you ever want to do something really significant? Something that really matters? Instead of wasting your time, taking up space, at the end of your life, that it really counted for something? Look at this. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. It's the eleventh time that word abide has been used in this passage, but it's used differently for us. It's not talking about us abiding in Christ. It's about our fruit that He grows in us, abiding. It's fruit that lasts forever. It's fruit that makes a difference eternally. It's fruit that makes an eternal impact. And this isn't just for missionaries. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for the apostles. It's for any branch 
any of us who will abide in Him, He will grow in us fruit and fruit that will matter for eternity. It will abide. Is that good news? For a bunch of nobodies. Because, hey, I know you. And you know me. And by this world standards, we're all a bunch of nobodies. But God is saying here, it's within our grasp. Any one of us as a believer in Jesus Christ, our life can have eternal impact. Not because we're so great and wonderful, but because we can be connected to a great and marvelous Savior whose Spirit is in us and He promises to grow fruit in us if we will simply make our home in Him and Him at home in us. That's a marvelous promise. Wow. One last one. I've got, I got to quit. I've got to wrap it up. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The third promise here is a joyful life. If we will make our home in Him and make Him at home in us, because Jesus just said, I've spoken these things to you. What things? Everything He just said. It came before this. I've spoken these things so that you may have my joy and your joy may be full. What Jesus didn't promise here is a life with no problems. What He didn't promise here is that you're always going to get a promotion, not a pink slip. What Jesus didn't promise here is that, that your kids are always going to be obedient and respectful. What He didn't promise here is that your dog will never bite you. Matter of fact, where we're going to be in two weeks, we're going to discover that when we follow Him, when we make our home in Him and make Him at home in us, we will likely have some suffering and some pain and even some persecution. But He says, despite all that, your joy can be full. He doesn't say can be, he says it's a promise. I'm 67 years old. I know that makes me like ready to keel over at any moment. It means I've lived a lot of years and I've seen a lot of people. 67 years of observing people and lots and lots and lots of Christians. I can tell you this. The closer that someone walks, in other words, lives with Jesus, the more joyful they are. I've never seen that fail. Even people who have gone through great difficulty and great suffering, and I've observed some of those, they are people that have a joy that transcends circumstances. Why? Because it came from Jesus. Most of us don't see it because we're too busy chasing all the other things the rest of the world is chasing, trying to find what will make them happy. And what they don't understand is it's a dead end. Solomon has been there and he said it's meaningless. There's nothing under the sun that will satisfy. But see, we're not looking under the sun. We've got our eyes on Jesus. He says if we make our home in Him, make Him at home in us, our prayers will be answered. 
we will have eternal impact and we will have a joyful life. Father, these are amazing words. Words we so need to hear because quite frankly, so many of us go through life biding time aimlessly or focused on the wrong things. How we need to remember that as those who know Jesus Christ, we have a purpose. You desire to grow in us fruit. Fruit, abundant fruit that lasts for eternity. And all we have to do is make our home in You and make You at home in us. Lord, may may You begin to change us even this day. Change our perspective. Change our attitudes. And change us. Make us like Jesus. That's really what that is. When it says Christ-like, it's just making us every day a little more like Jesus. That's what we want to be. There may be somebody listening here this morning, maybe online, maybe here, that has yet to trust Jesus as their Savior. Father, may they understand how much You love them. Jesus came to pay the penalty of their sin so that they can have an eternal life with You and a new life now. May they even now place their faith and trust in Jesus. So we ask in His name. Amen. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, Missouri. May God bless you as you grow in your walk with Him this week.